Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 17. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Special guest performers Mary Rogers and Danielle McCarville. For more information about Mary and Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 27 Sasha stood with Rusk, Ost, and Carl across the chart-covered table from Captain Nightlighter. Aye, this be a fast ship, Captain Nightlighter exclaimed as he looked up from his charts, having just taken a reading of their position with his astrolabe and quadrant. The tea and the teacups on the table rolled with the motion of the heaving waves. The seas had grown a bit higher in the last day. The captain also believed that they had caught the North Yarburg current, which was further increasing their speed. I knew twould be, but after four days at moderate winds, my ciphering is correct. This little brigantine is nearly twice as swift as Silver Hind. Makes her look like wallowing old sea cow, she does. Can we overtake Gullwing? Rusk asked. A galley like Gullwing can make way comparable to Hind. He scribbled calculations on a sheaf of coarse paper. So if we're, there what, ten days ahead, and we're about eighty leagues west-northwest of Chelsea now, with another two hundred fifty leagues before we port in Lochmana, we could reach Lochmana within three days, if the winds hold true. In Lochmana, we can ask questions, Rusk said. The captain scratched his head. If Gullwing is on its way to Farta, the first major Farta city be Almithra, almost a thousand leagues. We could indeed overtake them before they reach Almithra. Alcott is nearer, but has no port in the ocean. Only fishing villages along the north coast. It's a Duthan ship. No one will give a Duthan ship more than a glance in any farthy port. Carl said, Perhaps Almithra would be a logical destination for them. Back on farthy soil but on the only farthy soil open enough to receive a foreign ship with foreign cargo. Landing in Alzab would bring too many questions and prying eyes, I'll wager. Sasha felt a sudden pang of hopelessness. They were operating solely on instinct. Of course, the boss's instincts were as sharp as an animal's, but the weight of so many ifs bore down on her. It seemed they were all praying for some stroke of incredible fortune to stumble across one little girl and her captors in all the wide world. She said, "'Your reasoning is good, Carl, but what if they're not going to Almithra? What if they're going to any one of a thousand little fishing villages or hidden lagoons anywhere between Duth and Almithra? That's at least five hundred leagues of coastline. These men were living under incredible secrecy. If they're not working for the priest-kings, whom are they working for? Would such men take Bella into the heart of Fartha, or would they take her someplace far out of the way, someplace hidden?' Rusk glowered at her. Leave it to the woman to make it all hopeless. 
She glanced at the four male faces who looked annoyed that she had just destroyed their moment of feeling useful. It's just that, she began. Russ chuckled and slapped her on the back. A good reminder that what we're doing is fucking hopeless, but we're doing it anyway. If need be, we'll scour every town and village on the north coast of Astala, either till we die or the gods grant us a miracle. The only way Gullwing will elude us is if they send it to the bottom of the sea. He took his teacup and downed it in one swig. Inanan's teats, Nightlighter, but that pirate captain had good taste in tea. Aye, boss, Carl said. This is fine cut McClon green. Fifty suns for a stone weight of this in Jelsey. Rusk's eyes widened. Then the pirate business must have been good for as long as it lasted. Sasha, call the cabin boy and have him make us some more tea. Sasha smiled. Aye, boss. She stepped out of the cabin onto the deck. The noonday sun grew hot, but the stiff wind kept the sails bulging. With only eight crewmen on a vessel designed for a crew of twenty-five, the sailors kept busy. The Black Furies helped as best they could. In fact, they were eager to learn. Buck and Corkleg had spent some of their prior lives on ships, enough to make passable sailors, so they'd been helping the others pick up the arcane lexicon and dizzying array of tasks on board ship. Sasha was not looking for any of them. "'Lord Codsucker Wallstone, where are you?' Javin came up from below, his arms, face, and tunic filthy with black smudges. "'Yes, my lady.' Weariness and annoyance tightened his face. He, Tonin, and Maggot had been given the task of the cleaning of the ship's cannons, one of the filthiest tasks ever devised by the minds of men. He smelled like powder residue and solvent. The codsuckers had their work cut out for them. This brigantine, which the men had rechristened Bella's Star— boasted considerably more firepower than the trundling old Silver Hind. Eight guns on a side put her on a level above even the most well-armed merchant ship. Not enough to face down a McClan man-of-war, but enough to make any frigate take her seriously as an opponent. Call me that again, and I'll have you doing push-ups until sundown. He stood at attention. I'm sorry, sir. What do you require? More tea. That was some fine stuff you made. I'll just clean up a bit first, sir. That would be wise. It simply would not do for you to leave black fingerprints on the captain's fine porcelain. Lord Codsucker Javin Wallstone held his tongue, but with effort, and spun on his heel and went below again. Damn him, but being filthy made him even more handsome. She clenched her teeth. She dared not allow herself to become attached to him. Rilan had cut a fine figure in his Wallstone uniform as well. As fine a soldier as common blood could produce, so said his superiors. A kind man. An honorable man. A courageous soldier. A loving husband. A tender lover. And a bastard for leaving her to go to war, where he'd been fool enough to stand in the path of a farthy cannonball. Inanan's mercy, but she missed him. Now came this damnable wallstone. She clenched her teeth again and felt her fist strike her leg. Damn him! But he was not Verlan. No one would ever be, not to her, never again. How much longer must he submit to this outrage? Javin punched the coarse wooden wall of the galley as he stormed into the small compartment. Never had he withstood such humiliation. Damn her! She took such pleasure in it. He punched the wall again and left a smear of blood from his knuckles. Fresh pain spurted up his arm. Even the lowest, most insubordinate soldiers were not treated this way. 
forced to serve as a cabin boy to a bunch of ill-bred commoners, forced to swab out the greasy black bowels of cannons, forced to coil and recoil ropes until his hands were raw and bloody, forced to empty the reeking chamber pots overboard. If there was a menial, repulsive task to be done, Javin would be the one doing it. Even Maggot seemed relieved that much of Rusk's attention was taken off him and placed squarely on Javin. Tonin was content to remain largely unnoticed. Javin's entire body was a burning knot of aches. As soon as they had taken the pirate ship and parted ways with Silver Hind, the Black Furies dropped their veil of secrecy. Therefore, the training regimen commenced immediately. At first light of every day, Sasha led them all through their morning training. Javin had never felt so weary, so beleaguered, so much the target of the malicious glee with which Rusk, Sasha, and Ost punished the three codsuckers. He had not expected part of the training to be simply the infliction of pain. Constant, grinding pain. Sparring with the mainmast as if it were a real opponent quickly turned Javin's knuckles into a swollen, bloody mess. Then, while Carl or Ost held his feet like a wheelbarrow, on those same knuckles he would make a circuit of climbing up and down the steps to the poop deck. The handful of sailors watched the trainees' grueling punishment with horrified fascination, and no small relief that they were not the victims. "'You still fear the pain, Lord Codsucker Wollstone,' Rusk would say as he looked into Javin's eyes. "'When you have endured enough, you will no longer fear it. Then we can move on to other things.' Every afternoon, after Javin beat his knuckles bloody against the mainmast, Carl would wrap Javin's hands in strips of cloth to face several of the Black Furies in sparring matches. Each day, each of the trainees faced five of the Black Furies in an exhausting succession of sparring bouts. No punches to the head were allowed, only kicks. But they would come at him with a flurry of punches that turned his belly, chest, and ribs into a single throbbing bruise. After every session, he felt as if he had been beaten by a hundred clubs. The first day, he only reached the third opponent before Corkleg knocked him unconscious with a roundhouse kick to the side of the head. He was more careful to guard against kicks after that. Most depressingly, all of his opponents assured him that they were only fighting at half strength. If they fought at full strength, he would have died scores of times from ruptured organs, shattered bones, or a broken neck. After each pummeling, Javin learned the kicking, striking, and grappling techniques that his opponents had used against him. This part of the training he actually enjoyed. It gave him respite from the pain in a moment where he felt like he was learning something, and he relished the idea of using these techniques in retribution. That respite disappeared just as quickly when he was subjected to the most diabolical training technique of all. The Furies called it Two Minutes of Heaven. After all the beatings, striking practice, and exertion, five men, one grasping each limb and one performing a headlock, grappled the victim. For two minutes, these five men did nothing except twist and stretch and pull the victim's limbs in every painful way possible, while the fifth man tried to choke the victim unconscious. The victim had simply to fight against them with every smallest scrap of strength and strive to remain conscious for two minutes whilst barely able to breathe. The first time, Javin fell into a well of mercifully painless blackness, and when he awoke, he lay on his back, looking up at the circle of grim faces standing over him. When he had awakened enough to think again, 
They explained to him, quite matter-of-factly, that he could tense his muscles and summon his strength to resist the pain, control his breathing to prevent blacking out. On the second day, he lasted longer than the first. Likewise, on the third day. The fourth day was the first time that he heard Ost announce that his two minutes of heaven were over, and he lay on the deck gasping for breath, his heart thundering in his ears like a cowlod stampede, the black tunnel his vision had become receding, and a warm, tingling sensation of blood beginning to flow through his limbs. He lay there on his back and laughed, tears streaming down his cheeks. Even as he was beaten into near unconsciousness and death, he felt something building deep in his belly, something that came closer to the surface every day, and he lay in his hammock with his entire body a throbbing symphony of swollen bruises and blood-encrusted welts. He did not yet know what it was, but one day it would make itself known. For an hour every day, Tonin taught them the rudiments of the Farthy language. They started with simple phrases, greetings, then moved on to numbers and basic words. The Furies applied themselves to learning Farthy with the same seriousness with which they approached weapons and combat training. It was during these lessons that Javan began to appreciate the intelligence of these men. They were not mindless thugs, nor slaves to Rusk's indomitable will. Quite the contrary, he could see their razor-sharp minds at work, memorizing strange new words and shaping their mouths around unfamiliar sounds. Tonin seemed to relish these lessons as well, and Javan found him to be a fine teacher. It was as if Tonin had found something of value within himself that he had long despised. One day, Rusk stood before the three trainees. You codsuckers are lucky! Lucky, boss, Maggot said. Lucky that we're not dead, sir, Javan said. Aye, little codsuckers, lucky. Most codsuckers have the option of leaving the training and falling out failing. You are lucky because you don't. You're either going to complete the training or else die in the attempt. Now isn't that lucky? Rusk grinned hugely. Javan did not feel lucky. He never knew his body could be pushed to such limits. Even as he wanted to rip off his arms and throw them into the sea to spare himself the pain, he managed to find the strength to continue. His back was agony. His legs were excruciating but his heart still beat and his breath still pumped. Now he was making tea. Coal still glowed inside the cast-iron stove. He lit a teapot from the barrel of fresh water, placed it on the stove, and threw in a few more lumps of coal, and stoked the fire. He opened the cupboard, looking for the wooden box where the fresh tea was stored. He found the box empty. He went back up on deck and knocked on the captain's cabin door. The captain's voice bade him enter, and he stepped inside to see everyone staring at him. Uh, begging your pardon, sirs, he said, but there is no more tea in the galley. The captain said, I believe you'll find a large bag of it in the cabinet behind me. He thumbed over his shoulder, and the rest of them returned attention to the charts spread out on the table. Javin saluted and hurried over to the cabinet. We should put into port briefly at Dutt, the captain continued, just to make sure our stores are full. Then we are free to follow them all the way to Alzab if need be. Javan moved around them and opened the cabinet. Among the shelves, clothes, and scattered possessions of the dead pirate captain, there was a burlap bag about the size of his head, labeled Macklin Green. He grabbed it, but it snagged on something. He pulled harder. The bag ripped, and something wooden cracked and splintered. The bag had been pinched, 
under a wooden slat in the rear of the cabinet. The bag now had a tear in the lower corner big enough for his finger trailing tiny pungent green tea leaves. Inside the cabinet, the wooden slat had splintered on one corner. But how did the bag come to be pinched? He spotted a fine seam around the wooden slat. He reached in, grasped the slat, and tried to wiggle it. To his surprise, it slid easily to the side, revealing a small, dark niche. A cylindrical case of hardened leather, about the length of his arm, lay within the niche. Rusk's voice turned him around. What is that? What are you doing? Javin brought out the case. Captain, sir, this is not yours, is it? Captain Nightlighter eyed the case. Why, no, that looks like a mop case, aye. Javin handed it to him. The captain pulled off the end and upended the case. Sheets of rolled parchment slid out onto the table. Javin said, Why would a ship's captain need secret maps? Everyone else in the room looked at Javin as if he were a simpleton. The captain said, Why, for treasure stashes, aye. They weren't carrying their booty around with them. The captain looked down at the maps. Such maps could be worth a grand sum of treasure. Let's have a look, shall we? He unrolled the largest one. "'Tis written in forty. Perhaps the late lamented previous captain did his fair share of offensing stolen goods in farthy ports,' Rusk said. "'He wouldn't want to tie up a farthy dock with a fistful of charts written in Cuscan. Wouldn't look good if his ship were searched.' The captain nodded. "'Perhaps. Any of you speak farty. I know me a few words, but little else.' Rusk looked at Javin. Go and get Codsucker Tonin. Tonin stood over the map, with everyone peering at it around him in a circle. This map of the eastern coast of Ostala, with numerous meticulously charted towns all around the coast, also showed inland cities towns, roads, and rivers in astonishing detail. As a military man, Javin could appreciate and recognize a superior map. Rusk echoed Javin's thought. He must have paid a fortune for a map of this quality. Aye, the captain said. He looked at Tonin. Can you read the notes? I can, sirs, Tonin said. His eyes darted around the parchment. This one gives the name of the harbormaster in Al-Zab with a note that says, Ten Zo. That's like ten sons, but Zo are bigger coins. He pointed at the city of Eldrathi. And this one is similar. I'll read Trudy Logbooks again, the captain said. Perhaps I'll find what these mean. He pointed to a small circle, crudely drawn in red ink, with two crossed red lines through it, and a note scribbled in Farthy. Within the circle was a town or village. What about this? This looks like someone had a bad experience here. Tonin squinted and looked closer. The hand is terrible, but I think it says the Ibsathans are here. Is that all? Rusk said. It looks like it says more than that, but what does it mean? I can't read it. Uh, maybe it says, Avoid this village if you value your... He peered closer. The script was tiny and crabbed, written in ink that had run together, but it looked slightly newer than the rest of the map. Heads and hands, perhaps. 
Avoid this village if you value your head and hands, and beware the tides. Ibsothens, Rusk said. What does that mean? Literally, it means the one prophet, but the Farthi religion venerates two, Sadim and Melim. What about head and hands, Javan said. The four Farthi slave women were murdered by severing their heads and hands. Hathad, Rusk said. Hathad? Tonin said, I remember my mother speaking about a group of zealots in Almithra who wanted to bring back the old laws and perform Hathad on all the criminals, regardless of their offense. This group became powerful in Almithra. She left Fartha because of them. But practices like Hathad are not common throughout Fartha, Rusk said. I don't know that, sir. I have never been there, Tonin said. What is the name of this village? Barmia, sir. Is there any date on this map? Rusk said. Tonin leaned over and searched the parchment, then laid his finger on the corner. The year of the prophets, 1134. That's 942 in Kuskin years. This map is 46 years old, Rusk said. So this group, the one that likes to hack off heads and hands, that's been active in this village for at least that long. He stabbed his thick, calloused finger onto the map. Bar Mia. Something in the back of Javin's head buzzed, and the feeling that had been building in his belly rose even nearer to the surface, like a pit wolf that had found the scent of its quarry. All of them looked at each other, then at Rusk. He sensed it among the others, too, a congealing sense of instinct. Well, Rusk said, perhaps the old blind box sow has dug up an acorn. Chapter 28 A strange calm fell over the ship and awakened Bella in her dark prison. There was no tossing of waves, no wind in the sails, but she did hear distant activity. Throngs of voices filtered through the thick wooden hull, through the wooden walls of her box. Wood slid and clunked on wood, ropes creaked, footsteps thumped. They were in port. She felt a moment of elation, followed by a gush of fear and sadness. If they had arrived somewhere, she was now closer to her ultimate fate, whatever that might be, death, or torture, or enslavement. The elation returned when she considered that she would be soon out of this horrid, cursed box, even if it were only to die. She considered screaming for help, but who would save her? She had no friends here, wherever she was. On the slim chance that someone might hear her cries, the black guards on board the ship could make up any story they chose. Her throat was too raw and constricted now to do anything but cause her pain. Over the last few days, exhaustion had overtaken her, and she found herself constantly drifting in and out of sleep. All sense of time flowed together in a formless gray void. She had no idea how long it had been since she had seen a friendly face. A month? A year? Years flowed by like endless rivers in endless dark dreams. She did know that she had not seen the sun in days. They had not taken her on deck, even to teach her how to pray, since she had thrown herself into the sea. 
The stripes on her back had finally stopped burning, but she could still feel them whenever she moved. The strips of red wheel on her arms gave her a glimpse of what her back must look like. Her captors had moved her box deeper into the cargo hold to be nearer the livestock. She listened to the voices of the chickens and ducks and box, and she whispered back to them. They were her only companions, and she could sense in her darkness that her companions were slowly disappearing. She could only assume that they found their way into the cursed gullets of the sailors on their ship and the men who had taken her. For her to relieve herself, they only allowed her to step a few paces out of the box and squat with the animals. She was not allowed to walk and stretch her legs, so by now it was difficult for her to stand at all. One small bowl of rice porridge per day and two cups of water were her only sustenance, but even this meager fare she found herself unable to finish. The water was like the sweetest nectar, but her tongue had become so swollen that she could hardly force the tasteless food down her throat. All she could do inside her wooden torture cell was listen, and dream, and whisper to her friends, and weep sometimes. But she was becoming a good listener. She could hear heavy barrels being lowered and rolled into the cargo hold, and she could hear the liquid sloshing inside them. She could hear fresh chickens brought in cages. She could hear the men speaking, but could only make out snippets of conversation. Where was the ship now? Lakmana? No, they had certainly rounded the northwest coast and passed Lakmana by this time. One of the free cities? Perhaps. But the speech was an impenetrable babble of strange accents and unfamiliar tongues. She thought she might be hearing Duth repeated many times. Perhaps they had reached the free city of Duth, but she had no idea how long such a journey might take. If they were in Duth, that meant they had not yet reached Fartha. But Duth was the closest of all the free cities to Fartha, and the one with the closest ties and the warmest relations. All of the free cities were careful to maintain their neutrality, but Bella understood little of politics. She only knew that Fartha was Cusca's ancient enemy, and that the free cities did their best not to choose sides between the two great powers. Until her abduction, all she wanted was real, lasting peace. Her entire life had been war. So many had died, so many had suffered on both sides. For her entire life, she thought surely they could find a way to coexist. Not any more. Now she wanted to see Fartha in flames. She wanted her father to turn the eastern half of Astala into a heap of smoking corpses and rubble. She wanted her father to show them who was superior, who was just. She yearned to destroy every altar to their heinous prophets, whose ancient teachings spawned and sanctioned such cruelty. She had dreamed up such exquisite tortures for her captors, Rolf and Guzden. Beatings and burnings and brandings and grinding, stabbing, ripping, gouging. She wanted them to experience a hundredfold the cruelty they had inflicted upon her. Her dreams often turned bloody. When they were not blind, 
panicked flight into endless black voids, naked and helpless among half-seen hordes of sneering faces. She drifted in and out of sleep. After a time, the boat moved out of port again, another day of darkness and agony and the stink of her own filth. Another day, Father Helian had done nothing to save her. Another day, Mother Inanan had kept her face turned away. The gods had forsaken her. She no longer cared to see the sun again. She only cared about the sea. Only the sea. Because the next time she saw it, she would embrace it once again, and there would be no saving her. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.